Liquefaction happens when the ground loses strength and stability during an earthquake, and it can trigger widespread destruction. Our guest today is part of a team working to predict where liquefaction may occur. So how are past and recent earthquakes contributing to their research? An earth-shaking discussion is up next on this episode of Technology Today. We live with technology, science, engineering, and the results of innovative research every day. Now, let's understand it better. You're listening to the Technology Today podcast presented by Southwest Research Institute. Hello and welcome to Technology Today. I'm your host, Lisa Pena. Our guest today is visiting San Antonio from Rockville, Maryland in the Washington, D.C. area. He's here to talk about earthquakes and better predicting their impact, specifically where they will trigger liquefaction. Dr. John Stamatikos is a Southwest Research Institute geologist and geophysicist, cutting to the core of earthquakes with groundbreaking science. Thanks for joining us, John. Oh, you're welcome. So our buzzword today is liquefaction. So tell us, what is liquefaction? So liquefaction um, occurs when soils of certain types, especially soils that are saturated in water, lose their strength. And during earthquakes, these soils lose their strength because the shaking, the repeated cycles of the shaking basically pump up the water to the point where the grains or the sand grains or the whatever component parts of the soil are no longer in contact. And basically the soil then became, be, behaves as a liquid. So what type of damage can liquefaction cause? So in the large examples of damage, it's very extensive. So in 1989, Loma Prieta, there was liquefaction that caused the collapse of the Embarcadero uh, Causeway, and that, that was very disastrous. And the recent earthquakes in New Zealand caused widespread liquefaction and, in fact, destroyed a suburb of about 10,000 homes. Uh, 2018, there was a liquefaction event in Indonesia that also caused a lot of death, maybe 500, 600 people in uh, one to 2,000 homes also destroyed from liquefaction. It can destroy building foundations, foundations for bridges, uh, it, in um, really big events, it can destroy entire cities. All of the soil behaves as now as a liquid, so every building is turned on its side or collapses. Um, it is probably one of the biggest consequences of large earthquakes that causes damage. Yeah, so does the size of the earthquake, the magnitude, matter? Is it smaller earthquakes, you know, don't usually cause liquefaction? So the the larger earthquakes probably uh, result in a larger area experiencing liquefaction, but the even smaller earthquake can cause liquefaction. And we're one of the research areas that we're really looking at in the consortium that we're working on is to evaluate how small an earthquake can be and still result in damage. And we're finding now evidence that even really small events can can be devastating given the right soil conditions. Okay, so walk us through that. How does the earthquake react with the soil or shakes it up and, and basically makes it into a liquid? Yeah, so so the soil is shaking. Um, when earthquakes occur, they, they produce this energy that vibrates and you get these cycles of, of you know, up and down or, or lateral back and forth. And so this lateral cyclic shaking causes the fluid in the pore spaces between the grains to to expand. And if it's occurring fast enough and that fluid can't escape, the fluid basically expands the soil until the 
grains, the sand grains are no longer in contact with each other, and then it's basically a slurry, and it loses all of its strength. So if you have a foundation embedded in it or you have a pad on top of it, that's going to react as if now it was sitting on top of a pool of water. So the big issue now is predicting where this is going to happen, because obviously if there's anything that can proactively be done to secure an area, um, that's, that's what we would want to do. So Southwest Research Institute is part of the Next Generation Liquefaction Consortium. So what is the mission of the consortium? So the consortium was started by uh, groups of scientists in California, specifically uh, John Stewart, who the, was then the chairman of the Civil Engineering Department at UCLA, working with groups at, at Berkeley and University of Washington to put together a new study to try to d improve the modeling and the predictability of the modeling um, that would go into uh, making assessments of whether or not a soil that you're going to build on would liquefy. There's been a long controversy about how that's been done in the past. And in fact, there were two groups uh, in California who had very divergent models. And depending on which model you would use, you would get Either, yeah, this, this soil's safe, you don't need to take any countermeasures in your construction, too. This soil's really bad, you better spend an extra 200000 400000 $400 million, in some cases, to construct something that would be safe. And so there was this huge uncertainty in the predictability of these equations. And the consortium was founded in order to try to bring all of the leading experts together to come to a common agreement on, on a new model that everybody could rely on. And who is part of the consortium right now? Well, the consortium is, um, it was developed out of this group called the Pacific Engineering Earthquake uh, Research Center, PEER. And the main contributors right now are the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So they got very interested in supporting this because they need to update their guidance. They rely on some of these older models that are uncertain. So they would like to have a much more state-of-the-art and much more reliable set of predicting equations to provide guidance on how they regulate the construction of, of critical facilities. Uh, the California um, Coastal Commission, the California Highway um, Department, I can't remember the exact acronym for that group, but those are the types of groups. And we've been working with some groups in Japan to try to get their interest in the, in the, in the consortium. Um, and the Bureau of Reclamation. So the Bureau of Reclamations is another group that's res responsible for a large number of big dams in the western United States, and liquefaction has a big potential impact on the stability of, of, uh, of these large dams. So there are a lot of entities that play a role in, in the consortium now, and the goal is to get everybody on the same page to predict where this will happen. So what type of data are you collecting and studying right now? So the first phase of this project, which is now large, is not complete, but it, a good part of it is, is, is established, was to develop a new uh, usable database of observations. We call them case histories. So we've now, um, we built a, the, the software for it here. It's accessed through what's called the NERI website. It's a engineering website that's run at the University of Texas. But users can go in and input data that um, of, of all kinds of observations from recent uh, or even older liquefaction events. So the size of the earthquake, any records, any actual recordings of the ground motion, the types of soils, any kind of data collected to characterize the soil, which is a key component in understanding whether or not liquefaction will occur. Um, 
the uh, extent of the liquefaction, the um, any direct observations from people who who went through it, aerial photographs, measurements of displacements, measurements of deformation, all that information gets packaged into what's called a case history database. Once we have a large number of those, then that's going to form the the base data that the expert modelers will use to go in and create these new predictive tools to say, okay, um, here's where liquefaction occurred, here's the energy that was needed to cause the liquefaction, here's the percent of sand, here's the percent of clay that was in this soil. All of those things will go into their models to help them make uh, these new, better models. So that collection is underway now. Have you had any insight based on that data? What is the data revealing? So as we talked about a little a few minutes ago, I think one of the really surprising things is that we're finding out that pretty small earthquakes still result in, in, um, in liquefaction. Um, and so the, I think a focus of some of our new research is going to have to be looking at um, how, how little energy does it actually take under certain conditions to liquefy. Normally, in the past, we've been saying, well, if, you know, magnitude 6 or smaller earthquake, we wouldn't worry about it. Well, now we're finding examples where liquefaction occurred with a magnitude 4.5 earthquake. That has a big implication because, you know, places like Oklahoma, where we're inducing a lot of small earthquakes, now may also have areas that are susceptible to liquefaction if the right earthquake occurs in the, in the or the wrong earthquake occurs in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. Let me put it that way. So the, with the smaller earthquakes able to to produce liquefaction you know it might not cause the widespread destruction of the bigger ones but several of these smaller earthquakes over time causing liquefaction does that lead to destruction down the road how does i, I don't think there's a cumulative additive effect i think we have liquefaction you have you know you have that event and and then the soil once the soil redrains it regains its strength um so i don't think there's a there's the you know, the worry that there's uh, sort of additive damage. It's just that you might have a facility that you never even thought was susceptible to an event. And if you have an earthquake that's really close by and it's even a small earthquake now, all of a sudden you may have an issue at that critical facility. So has this been your biggest discovery thus far with this data or what are some other highlights? I think that to me was the most surprising. I think the, um, I think the rest of what we've sort of collected now is just to try to catalog and get a good basis for where this might go next. Um, there's some really interesting things very that are very technical about how, what approach. There's a you know you can use a strain approach, a stress approach, an energy approach, but all of those really need to be sorted out by the way that we hope that uh, the community will come together in this sort of structured. Um, expert elicitation process that we envision, bringing them together with, in meetings, having everybody agree to uh, you know, certain approaches, having everyone go off and test those, come back, see what the results are, and go through that process again. So that's, the, that's really the next step. I thought it was interesting you said that the type of soil makes a difference. So what different types of soil are there and which one is most susceptible to, this, to liquefaction? So that was also sort of a surprising... Um, discovery when we started to catalog these case histories. Classically, uh, the uh, ideas about susceptible soil center on things that are very much composed of sand. So sand, pure sand soils that are saturated with water 
are thought to be the ones that are most susceptible. And if there's any content, what we call fines. Fines would be clay material or other non-sand material. We always thought if there was even just a small percentage of those that they would bind to soils. But New Zealand showed us that, in fact, soils that have relatively high fine contents also liquefied. So that's another area that we're really going to have to investigate more because these traditional models basically ruled out liquefaction of any soil that wasn't really pure sand. Well, let's talk about New Zealand a little bit because that has been a a big earthquake that you have studied. So um, that happened Christchurch, New Zealand, February 2011, huge earthquake. Do you recall the magnitude? So it wasn't, actually, it wasn't a very big earthquake. It wasn't very big. It was, okay. it was uh, I think, a magnitude 6.3 and a magnitude 6.4. And then the there destruction. It was, was just a, the level of the destruction. And the soil there was um, very susceptible to liquefaction. And in, in, in case there, in fact, there are some YouTube videos you can find of basically looking like water spouts. That's how much water was being ejected after the event that just flooded these communities with mud. Um, when the soil sort of recompacted after the liquefied event, it was it was surprising. What have you figured out from that event? Well, I think the the main thing was this uh, observation about that those soils had, were not traditionally considered to be that susceptible liquefaction because they had high fine content. I think another aspect of those that we're really starting to just appreciate is that the, the soils that liquefied went to a pretty great depth compared to some other events. You know, uh, 8 to 10 meters of, of, of soil liquefaction depth is pretty deep for soil. It usually affects just the upper couple meters of soil. So that was, a, I think, going to be a surprising thing that we're going to have to evaluate. But I, I, I caution of being by jumping too much um, forward because we have all these other case histories that all these other researchers are now loading into our database. And I think it'll be interesting once we have that established and we bring these all everyone together to talk about it, that we really see the full range of, of soil types, of earthquake types um, that have caused liquefaction damage. Jumping now to an earthquake in Indonesia in 2018, what have you learned from that particular event? There hasn't been a lot of data that's been added from that event. I kind of actually just looked that up on my way over here to say, oh, yeah, there's another one. Um, what What I understand is that the original damage was attributed to tsunami, but I think the eyewitness reports and some of the more detailed studies are revealing that was actually liquefaction that caused the majority of the damage. So that, I think, will be a focus where we're going to have to see if we can find some people who want to go to Indonesia and do some real detailed investigations and add that to our database. A good trip opportunity there. So a big newsmaker this summer, two back-to-back earthquakes shook the area near Ridgecrest, California. That was in early July. There was a 6.4 magnitude and then a 7.1. Did you learn anything from, from those two back-to-back events? Yeah, in fact, there was also a 5.3 that was grouped into what we call the main shocks, three, three interesting main shocks. Um, and that was a really interesting event because it occurred on two faults that are oriented 90 degrees to each other. The first earthquake on an unrecognized fault in, the, in an interesting orientation um, that was more almost east-west, and then the second big event on a north-northwest-south-southeast striking fault that we did know about called the Little, I think it's called the Little Lake Fault. Um, and what that showed us is that um, what some people have predicted for a long time, that when the stress that's unloaded on one earthquake event can actually take that, some of that stress can then get loaded onto another fault and cause that um, fault to rupture as well. And that's what we think happened here, that the first earthquake 
released the stress that um, was sitting there ready to go. And that stress then was added to the existing stress on the, on the bigger fault, and that caused the bigger earthquake. We're talking, you know, so much about earthquakes, but how many of us really understand what happens during an earthquake? So can you explain the science of an earthquake? What happens during an earthquake? So an earthquake is the release of a huge amount of uh, tectonic stresses that get built up on the fault. And uh, I think the easiest sort of uh, analog is to think about putting your two hands together and pressuring them first into each other as hard as you can, and then trying to slide one past another. And initially, the friction in your hands is stronger than your ability to move your hands past one another. But eventually, you could build up enough so that hands will suddenly and dramatically slip by one another. That's essentially the sort of stick-slip model we call it for earthquakes. So the tectonic stresses build up over time until the frictional resistance of that fault plane can no longer hold that stress, and you get a rapid relaxation, and that produces a huge amount of energy that then radiates out in all directions, and that's what produces all the shaking. Yeah. So is there really any way to protect buildings from the destruction of an earthquake? What are the solutions? There are, there are a lot of solutions, and some work better than others. Um, the, one of the things I think that's really um, starting to take hold in the community is a little bit of advance warning. So the energy that gets produced by an earthquake involves a series of different kinds of waves. And the first waves that are, emanate that move travel very fast are called the P waves, the primary waves. They're not very destructive, they're not very big, but they can arrive seconds or even minutes before the really destructive waves come there. So some communities and some organizations are looking at um, doing some preemptive things, like if they sense a P wave, all the fire doors, all the garage doors at all the fire stations will open so that the earthquake won't cause enough damage that they can't get the garage doors open afterwards. Elevators will move to the nearest floor and the elevator doors will open so that everyone can evacuate. Computers will back up their hard drives immediately so that you know some data, key data may get preserved, things like that. So we might get a little bit of an early warning. That's one. Uh, second is to design buildings that can withstand that kind of shaking. And there's actually a lot of experience um, in, in gained from past earthquakes and how that might go. So the simple things are to make sure you don't have any big facades in the front of buildings in earthquake zones where, you know, they're going to fall down on people walking by. Um, use, you know, very strong reinforcements on some of the interior parts of the building so that they can handle the 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 um, the, the lateral vibrations that often occur. Um, but we're still surprised once when, you know, we have these really big buildings, really strong buildings, and we still get lots of destruction. And specifically liquefaction, how can you protect infrastructure from that? It, it just seems like the ground just gives way. So deeper embedments, uh, very deep foundations. Um, yeah, there's, you know, there are probably other kinds of engineering solutions, but uh, most often it's just, sometimes it's just you have to remove all of that soil and, and use a engineered soil in its place. So if you don't live in what's typically considered an earthquake zone, do you have to worry about earthquakes? Um, I would say no. Um, I think that, you know, I'm a probabilist. I'm a, ad, a strong believer in probabilities. Let me put it that way. And Everywhere probably could get an earthquake, but the likelihoods are so small that you shouldn't really worry about them. 
Um, just like, you know, you could walk outside and get hit by a meteorite. Um, so right. it's sort of that level. But there are plenty of places where we do have to worry about earthquakes and their, and their consequences. So we're in here in San Antonio, Texas. Can earthquakes happen in Texas? So they do happen in Texas. Oftentimes they're triggered by the same uh, man-made phenomena that are triggering earthquakes in Oklahoma. They're induced either from you know, pulling out groundwater or pumping um, wastewater deep into injection wells. We're starting to see a big uptick in the induced earthquakes in West Texas as more and more uh, exploration and production goes on in West Texas, and they have to dispose of the wastewater in these deep wells. I don't think in San Antonio, though, uh, you might feel a very small earthquake related to uh, some small rock movement, but it's not likely that there would be anything destructive. All right, good news for us, right? <laughs> so what are the hot spots, the earthquake hot spots in the U.S.? We all know California. California, and, and these recent earthquakes, the other interesting thing is they're kind of showing that the shift of, earth, of California earthquakes is, is not just along the San Andreas, but there's been a series of them now in Eastern California, We've dubbed this the Eastern California Shear Zone, and that's become a, a, another place to where big earthquakes can occur. I think the Pacific Northwest is, is bracing for a big Japan-style earthquake because of the situation of the, plate tech, of the plates there. So that's definitely a place to worry about. Um, along the Rocky Mountains, especially in Utah, and what's called the Wasatch, the Wasatch Front is a pretty high active earthquake zone. The New Madrid is a classic one. So 1811 and 1812, there were three large earthquakes. No one, there weren't a lot of communities or population at that time, but produced three back-to-back magnitude 7 to magnitude 8 earthquakes. Uh, the famous newspaper stories that these earthquakes rang the bells in Boston. That's how energetic they were. So that's an area that, you know, there's an expectation that another series or one large earthquake could occur. Um, Eastern Tennessee is a has a pretty active seismic belt. There was a big earthquake in 1886 in Charlotte, North Carolina, or South Carolina. That that um, so we worry about facilities in that part. There's a repeat of that earthquake. Those are to me the most uh, active regions in the United States. So some of these areas that haven't seen activity in over a hundred years could wake up one day. Right, just based on historical evidence that you know. An earthquake that occurred in the past could repeat itself. That's right. So does your data allow you to estimate when we might see or where and when we might see the next big earthquake? Um, so we we don't really look at a specific where uh, when um, the next big earthquake can occur. What we try to do is use all the geologic and seismic information we have to estimate what the a probability or likelihood of some level of ground shaking may occur where you live. And so these maps produced uh, by the United States Geologic Survey or by the ones that we produce, they're really geared towards trying to say, you know, there's a 50% likelihood that you're going to get some level of shaking. So make sure that your building infrastructure, your emergency planning all counts for that level of shaking if you want to, you know, be robust and be safe and be resilient. So I thought it was important to note that when you're studying liquefaction, you mentioned you're not looking at just one grand big area. You're very focused. What What is your focus when you're studying a particular zone? The, the You really want to know, you know, what the area of the susceptible soil is. So you want to, you know, when you, when you go in and you, you really start to understand, okay, this kind of soil can liquefy and 
Um, here are the potential sizes of earthquakes in the region that could shake that soil. So it's really specific to the natural environment that you're, you know, you're looking at. So you're looking at like critical infrastructure. And we're really interested in critical infrastructure. Yeah. Bridges, hospitals, uh, nuclear power plants, which is what we do in, in, in here at the Institute, uh, our work, um, things like that. Yeah. So you want to know specifically about the area around these critical facilities. Right. Right. So you have spent, you said, 25 years studying earthquakes. And um, I'm sure you've gained a lot of insight in that time. And I'm sure it's, you know, it's kind of an inspiring, awe-inspiring sort of phenomenon, natural phenomenon. So what have earthquakes taught you about nature and our world? Can you sum it up? Uh, So the easiest way I could sum this up is that what's really interesting to me is the when you look at the to, to understand the whole world is really difficult because all of these different phenomena happen at such different rates, and we look at you know we study the Earth in terms of microseconds or even you know very short periods of time when we're talking about atomic energy or atomic studies or you know whatever those um, physicists do to geologists who you know deal in increments of time of ten million hundred million years, earthquakes occur. Um, they're a rapid phenomenon, but, you know, the recurrence of typical big active faults is 100 years or 200 years, so they don't occur, you know, that frequently. So the Earth has this ability to do all these things at very different timescales, and yet all of it sort of needs to be understood together if you really want to understand the Earth totally. So you're looking at the big picture. At the over... bi- right, at the big picture and studying the little steps that get us to the big picture, yeah. But those little steps are important, too. They right? are important. That's right. All right. Well, thank you for teaching us about liquefaction. Like I said, our buzzword for the day and a new word for me, and I'm sure for some of our audience. So thanks for taking some time also during your San Antonio visit to chat with us and for your insight today, John. I really appreciate it. It was a great experience. Thank you. All right. We loved having you. Well, that wraps up this episode of Technology Today. Subscribe to the Technology Today podcast to hear in-depth conversations with people like Dr. John Stamatikos, changing our world and beyond through science, engineering, research, and technology. Connect with Southwest Research Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out the Technology Today magazine at technologytoday.swri.org. And now is a great time to become an SWRI problem solver. Visit our career page at swri.jobs. Thanks for listening.